It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Kevin Brennan, the Labour MP for Cardiff West. He's been an MP for 20 years. We do talk about the changes he's seen in that time. Um, But you may recognise Kevin from the fantastic cross-party parliamentary rock group MP4, who were the house band on the TV show I did, Unspun. They also provide the live music at the Christmas specials of the political parties. If you've ever been down to the Leicester Square Theatre or the Bloomsbury for those Christmas specials, um, Kevin is uh, is one of MP4, along with Ian Causey, Greg Knight and Pete Wishart. We talk about that band and what it's been like being in a cross-party and in the years of Scottish independence and Brexit. Um, and also, Kevin himself has just released a new album. It's out in just under a fortnight. It's called The Clown and the Cigarette Girl. One of the songs is available to stream now on Apple Music and Spotify called Tabernacle Lane. And I'm not just saying this because I know him. It is absolutely brilliant. It's a fantastic song. And obviously, whenever a friend makes something, you're desperate for it to be good. And I think sometimes, if anything, if it's not really good, it's more awkward. It's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant. So I've put a link to the album that you can pre-order. And I've also put a link to the song. The song is fantastic. We talk about the song because it's an incredible story within it. And I I thought this can't be made up. So I googled it. And actually, it's based on a true, very sad story. Um, But a very important story. And Kevin is fantastic, a former whip. I mean, there's so much we talk about. But before all that, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. In fact, before that, I've stopped reminding people to leave a review. And I know you're probably thinking, oh, God, admin. I've got enough going on in my life as it is. But come on, while you're listening to this, you could just do it. You could just pick up your tablet or mobile device, wherever you listen to the show, leave a five-star review. And if you're on iTunes, if you leave a written one, It just helps the show get in the charts and go up the charts. And maybe you're thinking, well, why do you care? Well, you want a show to do well, don't you? So thank you to all of you that have uh, written very nice reviews. (laughs) I know I'm basically asking you to do it. But still, thank you for doing it. Now, on to the emails, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Let me know if you've ever had uh, a mundane peculiar, strange encounter with a politician, or if you've seen them somewhere you didn't expect to see them. Um, Fergus has been in touch saying, when Justine Greening was the MP for Putney, Roehampton and Southfields, I used to see her around Putney quite often, but I once spotted her in the co-op next to East Putney Tube Station. Well, that's a classic sighting. I mean, (laughs) MPs go to the supermarket as well, particularly in their own constituencies. I mean, I don't want this to border on... um, People following MPs around, obviously that, that clearly crosses a line. This is just like, if you happen to see them. Uh, but don't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> just email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and there's a discussion during this where I'm trying to guess the name of an MP. If you guess it before I do, because I do, well, no spoilers, but if you know the name, get in touch and just say, I got it before you. 
um, and I shall take you at your word. Don't forget the political party is now back as a live show, as it was always meant to be, as it always was, but now in London's glittering, beautiful West End. And my next guest at those shows is Caroline Flint, who's so good. Obviously now a TV star and pundit, but a fantastic, outspoken Labour politician who was a real star of those new Labour years and really should have been a lot more prominent. Such a fantastic talent. Come and see one of the most fantastic communicators who really tells it like it is. Uh, on Monday the 25th of October, you can get tickets for that show at mattford.com slash live. That will be a cracking night. Thanks for all your emails about the Penny Morden episode. That was an absolute treat. And now, on to Kevin Brennan, who I've known for a long time. Um, and obviously, uh, as I said, MP4... Um, have, we've done a lot of stuff together and we, we still get booked for events together and they're always great. Um, but I, I, Kevin was the first member that I met and when I used to work for the Labour Party we met on the Blinded Gwent by-election. Now I didn't say this in the interview because I, I didn't want to make it too awkward and also some of the guests I, I have on either I have met or I haven't met I don't want to really treat people any differently but I think sometimes it's handy for context. Kevin was so popular among party staff when you work on a by-election and this will be true for all uh, political parties you have the staff, you have the volunteers, you have the local members, and then what you also have is uh, usually an MP from that region effectively leading it on the ground. So it's still run by the party, but that MP there is kind of there, uh, I guess, reporting back to whoever the leader of the party is, um, but also to look after the candidate. And it's important for the candidate to have an MP there and for, for very understandable reasons. Those MPs aren't always hugely popular with uh, with with everyone and with the staff and they don't always get that right a lot of the times they do paddy tipping on the leicester south by-election was superb kevin in blinded gwent was magnificent and um, he had this battered old ford laser car i don't know if he still got it but he would make like playlist cds for people he was fantastic for morale he really understood how exhausting it was for everyone that staff had come from all over the country that they were away from home and he was just so friendly and warm with everyone. And um, when you're a new young member of staff, um, you really remember those people in positions of power who wear their power lightly and are open and are friendly. And it just gets you through some of those particularly on a campaign that you are effectively uh, destined to lose. Um, so I, I know Kevin, um, but again... Often that's what's most fascinating with this. Obviously, you don't really... I, we occasionally talk politics, obviously, but not for an hour and not in detail and not about moments in his life and his career in the way that we did here. There's, most of this stuff, a lot of it I just didn't know. And the stuff around the Iraq vote and him voting against the Labour government as a new MP is really, really interesting. And why he did it and, and the process of that and the aftermath is a, is a really, really interesting story. Um, and he's very modest. We didn't even talk about the fact that he was president of the Oxford Union. He's the least president of the Oxford Union politician, PPE at Oxford, um, but very much out of that mould. Um, we didn't talk about that this time, maybe uh, at some point in the future. But I began by asking Kevin that he'd been MP for 20 years now for Cardiff West. How much, not politics had changed, but specifically how much the Labour Party had changed in the last 20 years? Uh, well, there aren't as many of us as there were in 2001. <laughs> we got a bit more uh, space. 
there's a bit more room on our side of the house than there used to be back then. It used to be wedged in like sardines. Uh, I mean, the party obviously has been, you know, on a huge journey. 2001, I was elected at the time of Tony Blair's second landslide victory. You know, we were on the, the, the crest of a wave. They were talking about, will the Tories ever get back into government ever again? You know, it was a completely different political landscape just before 9-11, just before, you know, the Iraq war, you know, just before a sequence of events that really shook the foundations of, uh, of, of politics. But it was uh, an incredible time to be a member of the Labour Party and a very different party, as you say, in, in so many ways. And you come in in 2001 in Cardiff West specifically because that was Rodri Morgan's seat and he was standing down to focus on being First Minister in the, in the sort of newly constituted Welsh Assembly. I mean, for a Welsh Labour person, new Labour at its peak, a Welsh Assembly, a Welsh First Minister, it must have just felt like the best of times. It was in many ways. I mean, I've been very much involved in helping Rodri to become the Labour leader in Wales against Tony Blair's wishes, actually. Yes, so that's I, right. So, Alan uh, Michael was the preferred candidate. Is that that's right? right. And he was actually briefly the first minister. He was the first first minister. Uh, uh, slightly, it might be unfortunate for Alan, but he's slightly the, rather like Bonalore, Law, the unknown prime minister. He's sort of the unknown first minister. And um, Alan, it didn't work out. We had a minority, you know, it, 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 Alan was not the choice of the Welsh Labour Party, but the Electoral College had been fiddled a little bit to uh, to get him in. And uh, I was very much part of poking the all-powerful Tony in the eye a little bit about it and say, hang on a minute, this is, uh, this is not on. So I was very worried. I'd ruined my own chances of a, a political career by doing that. But in the end, um, you know, Tony Blair actually ultimately is a, pr a pragmatist and accepted. He got, yeah, actually one of the few things where he's come out and actually said, that's one I really got wrong. Uh, and it should have been Rodri all along. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a, a, a you know high watermark, I think, for Labour everywhere because we were in power, even in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> but Welsh Labour, you know, it's interesting that you invoke Scotland because a lot of the mistakes that Labour made in Scotland, I guess, culturally, arguably have been made in Wales as well. And and we first met the Blind Gwent by election, which was a real education in how those things can backfire. Where Peter Law mm. had been the MP. Uh, he was then effectively, de you know, defrocked as a candidate. Labour put in an all-women shortlist. Labour lose to this independent Peter Law. He then dies. His widow Trish Law then stands in the by-election, the by-election that we worked on and lost. And that was a real education for me because I was always in favour of all-women shortlists as a member of staff. I, you know, made sure that we had them in the, in the parts of the country that I covered as an organiser. But there were times when perhaps local parties were slightly sceptical about why they were being used in certain areas. And that was a real lesson to me in that you, you local parties just don't go quiet. And, and sometimes local communities react uh, yeah. you know, against what the, what the party would predict. And that was, a, Labour got its fingers burnt in Blinder Gwent. And I just think, you know, with on the back of the Alan Michael, Rodri Morgan thing, and then Blinder Gwent, Things could have gone differently for Labour in Wales. If you're seen to play the system too much, it, it can backfire. I think that's a very, very fair point. And um, certainly my fingers were burnt as part of that because my fingerprints are over some of that in this sense, in that, that of course, Rodri becoming leader, um, you know, a couple of us went to him and, and, and said, and, and he agreed with this, look, we can't go on with a daily coalition of a minority government. We've got to find a stable partner. 
and and we did and it, <clears throat> in the Liberal Democrats and and that was you know quite a breakthrough in Welsh politics. But some of the collateral damage of that was that Peter Law, the, the candidate who came back to haunt everybody, um, you know, sadly he, he died. So you know it was it was that's why the by-election was there. But Peter Law. Um, was then the victim, if you like, when the Lib Dems had to be brought into the candidate and, and uh, into the cabinet. So he had you know, a reason to be sore about the whole thing and therefore decided to stand for parliament. And, uh, you know, therefore, when it was an all women shortlist, there was a huge grudge about it. And therefore, he was able to win as an independent, uh, you know, and, or you're absolutely right that that Welsh Labour's success in a way is, be is because it hasn't done too many of those sorts of things. It hasn't taken Wales and the Welsh electorate for granted. In a way, Scottish Labour, New Labour in many ways, was quite a Scottish project, if you think about it. A lot of the principles in the New Labour project, even Tony Blair himself, you know, were, were, were Scottish in one sense or another. And therefore, they weren't always interested enough, I think, in devolution itself in Scotland to make sure that the really big guns, you know, were there in Scotland, uh, making sure the show was being run appropriately. Uh, and when Donald Dewar passed away, they lost you know, the one possible person who might have bridged that gap. Uh, so I think there is a lot of interesting, there are a lot of interesting lessons to be learned from Welsh Labour. And people have started to look a bit more at the success of Welsh Labour since 1999. Um, you know, we've been in government in Wales continuously, either on our own or as part of a coalition. One other crucial difference in these sort of devolved areas of, uh, of Britain is that the nationalist movement in Wales isn't quite of the same popularity uh, as the... In fact, it's just nowhere near as popular as the nationalist movement in Scotland. Is that to do with Wales having a different history with England than Scotland does? Is it about the way that, that Labour, perhaps, hasn't collapsed in Wales in the way that it didn't in Scotland? What are the reasons for that, do you think? I think it's both of those things. I think that, first of all, um, you know, the, the idea of independence has always been there in Wales, but has never been a very large number of people. Wales and England are much more closely intertwined economically. If you look along the border of Wales and England, you know, people and services are, are mixed. If you look at Scotland and England, it's 50 miles from, you know, the, 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 the most, the, the northernmost large um, English city and, and Glasgow or Edinburgh. So there's actually a sort of cordon sanitaire there that, that that means there's a there's a there's a big difference between uh, you know geographically even in wales the language plays into this a bit as well it's always been a a, a, a partial fault line in, in welsh politics thank goodness it's no longer a political football as it used to be in the past and everybody embraces the welsh language now in a positive way uh, but it but it, it, it's been a problem for plaid Cymru to break out of being seen just as a a Welsh language party, not a party that represents the majority of people who don't live in predominantly Welsh-speaking, traditionally Welsh-speaking areas. It's got all those issues. And then I think you're right. I think Welsh Labour have also successfully managed to identify themselves and in practice being, you know, a different brand from, uh, you know, UK Labour. And in a way, Tony Blair, the biggest favour Tony Blair ever did, Rodri Morgan and Welsh Labour, was by resisting him being the leader, because no one could ever turn to Rodri and say, you're just taking orders from Millbank or wherever, you know, yeah, you're, you're just a branch office of the London Labour Party. They couldn't say that because it wasn't credible. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, he did take a different policy pathway, uh, which I think was the right thing to do, even though it's cr people criticising it and saying, you know, we're going to have some clear red water in the way we approach things in Wales because we've got a different ethos. And all of that, I think, combined has, has been 
part of the recipe for success. And do you detect out there in, in the Welsh body politic or out on the doorstep a growing interest in Welsh independence? Does it get talked about more than it did 20 years ago or less? Well, I think you get this every so often. You get, you know, discussion, well, there's a growing interest. And the latest, you know, trigger for that in a way is Brexit. Although Wales did vote, it has to be said, in favour of Brexit in the referendum. Um, but, um, you know, there is there is an extent to which the Boris John Johnson government, some people will say, well, can we ever do anything unless we're independent? Will we always be reliant on, um, you know, a, a predominantly Tory politics, which is now a politics that dominates um, UK politics, simply because of the predominance of England within the United Kingdom, you're having such a large chunk of the population. So it, it does come up from time to time. And, you know, there's there's a, a movement called, you know, um, the, the kind of, you know, the yes, you know, indie movement, yes, Cymru, all that kind of thing, which tries to broaden it beyond just Plaid Cymru, because they realise that's a problem, it just being an issue within Plaid Cymru, and try to attract, you know, Labour voters to the idea. But, you know, my own view is, I think what Welsh people actually want, they want independence with a small eye, if you like. They want the independence to be able to decide their own policies in devolved areas, and that could be extended further. But they also understand that, you know, the economic consequences of, of independence for Wales, you know, we're looking, we're seeing some of the economic consequences of Brexit for the UK economy on our supermarket shelves and, you know, all the, all these, all these issues that we're, we're facing and in the Northern Ireland issue, et cetera. I mean, just imagine if Wales decoupled from the United Kingdom, the issues that would arise out of that. And people forget, you know, they, they, they comes with a, it does come at a price, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, you know, Ireland was impoverished for 50 years after it was uh, became independent and actually partitioned along the way and still is, you know, 100 years later. So it's not <clears throat> it's not that straightforward a prospect when you dig into the details of it. I think most people just want that degree of independence with a small eye. And Welsh Labour is the party that, that uh, you know, provides that and advocates for it. Yes. And I guess as long as the Assembly is there, you just argue for more powers and you basically have... You basically of course, it's now called the Senate. The Senate. So it's gradually been... And, and, and the powers were extended, you know, in a, in a referendum, uh, you know, 10 years ago, uh, which built on a very narrow win for, for devolution in Wales in the first place. So it's a, it's a much more organic thing, I think, devolution in Wales. It's not something you should force feed people with. The reason I call it the Assembly still is because when I see the Senate written down, I think it's got two N's and two D's, and I just think I've got, I, I'm, I, I know how to pronounce Assembly. I'm on safer ground than trying to pronounce a, a Welsh word to a Welshman. So I just, I take the easy option. <laughs> well, the Welsh for Assembly is Cynilliad, so you might have made the right choice by not trying to use that, the Welsh version of it. You talked about big beasts regarding New Labour in Scotland. And actually watching that Blair Brown documentary, I'm sure you've seen it, really strikes you how many big Scottish voices are in, are in that show and, and how Scottish Labour was. Um, but, but applying that to Wales then, were you ever tempted? Did you ever think, well, actually, I'd fancy being First Minister one day? Um, I think, I think the, the answer is probably no for, for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, I worked for Rodri and, 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 and worked very much on the Yes campaign, et cetera, for, for devolution. And it was clear, Rodri made it clear that it was his intention to go in that direction, um, which meant that in my, my home seat, there was going to be an opportunity for in, in House of Commons. So, you know, that, that, that was likely to, to come up at some point. I'd also spent 10 years on Cardiff City Council 
in a body of about 75 people, you know, members of the, uh, the council. And I just felt I wanted to paint on a larger canvas, you know, having done 10 years on the, on, on the city council, you know, same people. And, and, you know, the House of Commons, one thing it's got going for it is that, you know, there, there's 650 members from all over the UK. There's a, you know, and you can talk about anything in the world, you know, in the, in the House of Commons. And, and it, it felt to me like that was the right thing to do. And having made that decision, that's one, one or two have gone back, like Hugh Aranka Davis, who was the MP for Ogmore, um, you know, went back and, 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 and resigned from the House of Commons and stood to, to be in the Senate. But um, it, for me, I, I made that decision and, and, and stuck with it. I, I had hoped Labour might remain in power in Westminster uh, for a bit longer. And the last 10 years being in opposition has not been the, 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 my mo the most enjoyable part of it. No, it must have been. I mean, I always think of people, not that it's the, the, obviously the first priority is the country and, and, and having the best possible government and having a strong opposition that's a government in waiting to hold that government to account. But I do often think of friends in, in, in the party, staff and, and MPs, you just think, well, what a waste that, that these talents weren't put to the service of the nation. You know, you're still doing a very important job representing Cardiff, still done a very important job in various shadow ministerial roles. But really, you think, well, these are people who should be in government, who should be actually mm. helping change well, and manage things. I feel very lucky. I, I mean, I was, you know, in government for, for five years. I spent two years in the government works office, three years as a minister. And I did literally used to walk into the department every morning and made sure that I thought to myself, Neil Kinnock, who was, you know, someone I admired a great deal when I was a young member of the party, spent 24 years in the House of Commons and never once did he do what I'm doing today, walk into a government ministry as a Labour minister in a Labour government with an opportunity, a Labour minister in a <laughs> Labour government with, with an opportunity to actually change something rather than moan about it, do something, you know. And so I feel lucky, but I do agree with you. There's, there's, there's a whole group of people who may never get that opportunity unless we really get our act together. And having done 10 years heavy lifting on the front bench in opposition, I now, I've now decided to go down the select committee route in this parliament to try and influence things that way. But, you know, it, it's, it's a thankless task, ultimately. I guess what lay behind that question, uh, I didn't voice explicit explicit was, you, you know, you're a... You're an impressive guy, and for a lot of people, opposition is hell. And after a while, they think, well, I might actually go somewhere else and kind of climb the ladder elsewhere. Were you ever tempted? You know, the, the more Labour has stepped into the wilderness and arguably has stepped, you know, taken steps away from the wilderness, but still is, you know, not in a position to win the next general election yet. Did it ever, you know, did you ever think, oh, God, actually... You know, there's a whole load of difference in government and opposition. Government is, is, like you say, as a minister, you're actually doing stuff. In opposition, you're not. There's a world of difference in terms of what those two jobs are. Did you ever think, well, I might go and work in business or in charity or something like that? I, I mean, it, 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 it crossed my mind once or twice, and one or two people have approached me about various things that I've got some expertise in. Um, but for me, really, when it comes down to it, I think... It, it, yeah, people have often asked you, why did you get into politics? It's a question, probably one of the most, or how did you get into politics? And uh, my answer is always, it's, it's in my blood. And I think, I think that's, that's it. I know some colleagues have left and gone on, you know, in very well-paid jobs, often, you know, doing good things and, and being influential in those organisations. Uh, but I think politics is in my blood. And I just think it's, an, I think opposition is a really important job. It's an under-resourced job. People wouldn't believe how little support you've actually got 
you know, as an opposition front bench spokesperson. And particularly now, you know, the party's not exactly awash with money. We get some money for special advisors in opposition and so on. But you know, you're really on a on a on a wing and a prayer, relying on. You know, I used to say whenever I met people who were stakeholders in the brief that I was doing in opposition, you're my civil service. Basically, I've got to rely on you for the expertise, the information, the briefing, the reports, the suggested amendments, all that sort of thing. If we're going to do this bill or if we're going to do this debate and so on. So, you know, I'd be shameless about it. Say, you know, you, you know, I've already got one researcher here working for me on, you know, pressure out of university. You guys have, have actually got to provide the, the briefing. So it, it is tempting sometimes to think about it. But I think in my own case, it's just something that's in my blood. And just think about that time in government. Did you prefer being a whip or being a minister? I prefer being a minister. I enjoy being a whip. I was there for two years. I think probably one year would have been enough in the government whip's office. It's valuable, invaluable, really, because you learn a hell of a lot about the procedures of Parliament, the way things actually work behind the scenes. And that's really useful information. Um, but um, I enjoyed being in a department doing things. And the first job I had was a great job. I was working with Ed Balls in what was called the Department of Children, Schools and Families, uh, the Education Department, essentially. Govery branded it. Go, 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 tore down all the pictures of the munchkins on the wall and threw away all the soft cushions and, you know, right let books. Dominic Cummings come in and sign in as Osama bin Laden. There was a big culture change uh, at that time. Uh, you know, they really, they really just smashed the place up. They might as well have brought baseball bats with them afterwards. But, um, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, you know, it was great. And I thought we were doing some great things in that department with. You know, not just in schools and things, but in things like looked after children, your kids in care, uh, you know, adoption and, and uh, safeguarding of children, loads and loads of really good things, school meals, you know, try, trying to genuinely, you know, create a department that, that really made sure you gave the best opportunity and trying to make the, you know, the country the best place in the world for kids to grow up in. I thought it was a great agenda. Sadly, it was it was torn up for a much narrower agenda. And, and that just tells you it does make a difference whether you've got a Labour or Tory government, a huge difference over time. And just thinking about that time in the whips office then, because people are obviously uh, kind of drawn to whips, you know, the, the, the mystique of it. In the olden days, it was seen as a, almost a physical job. You know, the whips ruled by fear, often arms at the back and all the rest of it. And you know, there, yeah. there are certain books that suggest that perhaps that culture was still around a little bit at the start of... At the new Labour government, what was it like when you were there? Well, actually, I, I think that I think in the with the Tories is a bit more military. They're very kind of you know hierarchical, and they sort of you know walk around in those shoes that clack when you walk across the you know the tiles of of the, of the central lobby. Uh, whereas I think in, in the, the the new Labour certainly by the time um, I was there in two thousand and five, it, it, it was it's a bit more like the, the sort of human resources department of a local uh, authority, you know, because uh, uh, we, we had Hillary Armstrong and then uh, and then and then uh, Jackie um, Smith was uh, was who was a great chief whip and uh, who I got on very well with, and um, you know you you literally just trying to kind of mentor and find out what the problem is. So when I was a whip, for example, you know one of the senior whips came to say, uh, you know, an MP X. It's suddenly not turning up and they're not voting on things. So you try and find out what's going on, you know. So I go and try and track down this MP and knock on the door in their office and say, I know you're in there. <laughs> you know, <it's> literally <laughs> like I know you're in there. Someone told me they saw you go in and no one's seen you come out. You know, it's literally down to that level. Ultimately, come I on, find Jeremy. out. Really, 
there is, <laughs> yeah, there goes the neighborhood. Anyway, he, 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 uh, he, um, seriously though, the, 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 um, the reason why this member, and it wasn't Jeremy, by the way, the reason why this member um, was refusing to vote Labour was because we'd lost a lot of seats in 2005 and he'd been reallocated a different office. And it wasn't as nice as the office he had before because we had to give up territory. If you lose seats, you know, yeah. you literally, the estate agents come around, you've got to give up territory to the, to the, the larger party so their MPs have got offices. And he literally had been moved and he felt he hadn't been, you know, properly consulted about his new office and it wasn't <laughs> as nice as the previous one and he wasn't being treated appropriately for someone of his seniority and all that kind of thing. And for that reason, rather than, you know, kind of, you know, making making a little moan about it, complaint, he just suddenly decided to stop turning up. So it's literally sometimes it's that, that level is the sort of thing you're dealing with sometimes. Well, it's so funny that, that matters of state rest on, you know, if, particularly if you've got, if you're dealing with a small majority or, 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 you know, a contentious issue where you're going to have a big rebellion. So I'm guessing then, I don't know a great deal, I, I know more than perhaps the average Joe, but I, I've never got into the huge details of how the whips of his work. So I'm guessing that they're kind of territorial, that you would have been a Welsh whip and you would look after, did you have the whole of Wales or was Wales divided between two or three of you? I think it's better to describe it as intersectional rather than territorial. Oh, nice. because. Because you do, yes, you do a region, but you also do a department. So you do a region or a nation. So Wales would be one, yeah. uh, you know, nation, Scotland, another one. Um, the larger areas with lots of MPs, London and so on, might be split into a couple of um, regions and the, and the regions of England, obviously. Uh, so you are in charge of a, <clears throat> a brood of MPs, you know, from your territory. And the, the the whip is not always from that territory, but they, they do tend to try and allocate if they can in that way, particularly with the Wales of Scotland, although less of a problem in Scotland. Yeah. And, uh, Ian Murray whipping himself. He whips himself, yeah. Uh, that's just a rumour, by the way. Uh, but um, the, the, uh, then, then you're, also, you're also allocated to the department. So, for example, in the latter, the second year, I was the treasury whip. So I would go to all the treasury team meetings with Gordon Brown, you know, with the whole of the team uh, every week. And, you know, my job is telling what's going on in Parliament, you know, that kind of thing at the meeting. Um, uh, so you do get a department as well. So that's how it works. So I'm guessing then that that MP was a Welsh MP who had lost... Um, <clears throat> that's not a bad guess, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> Are they still an MP? Yeah, you, you seriously want to whittle this down now. Well... They are not still an MP. They are not still an MP. Well, if anyone knows... But they are still alive. They're still alive <laughs> on MP. If you can guess who it is, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Are you allowed to tell us who it is? Does it matter now? Um, well, I think I think, uh, I think your, your listeners, being political sophisticated people they are, could probably do a bit of uh, whittling down and, and figure it out. Um, senior ever... by 2005, long-serving... I think I probably gave it away. There was male, but that's not that unusual, given there weren't many female uh, Labour MPs in in, uh, in in Wales at that time. So, had they been a minister? No. Okay. No. <laughs> well, you'll have to tell me afterwards because I can't figure it out yet. I feel like an idiot for not. I, it's going to be so obvious. That I'm going to kick myself. Um, uh, this this is the clue where you'll get it. They they shared the name with a previous Labour leader. Okay, so 
Um, anyway, we'll leave it there. Okay. A surname <laughs> or a first the name? Whole same name. Same name. Oh, my and God. it's not well, Hardy. That, that should be so easy. <laughs> so, well, okay, it's not Hugh Gates. All right, that, uh, there we are. Now, you've, now I've got you. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Neil Kinnock, Michael Foot. Ed Keep Miliband. going. Ed Miliband. You missed a few out there. Harold Wilson, Jim Callaghan. Uh, Hugh Gates, Gill. You're getting colder. Okay, so it's more contemporary. Oh, there's going to be some obvious ones that I'm missing out. I'm going to kick myself for this. Um, okay, so let's just work back. So Starmer, Corbin, Miliband, mm. Brown, mm. Blair, John mm. Smith. Got it. John Smith moved office and stopped voting Labour. The diff- the other John Smith. If he sues me now, this is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Whip secrets are supposed to say secret forever, but there you go. And would you have, is your performance monitored as a whip? W- would there be spreadsheets where they go, oh, Kevin, come on, man, like... You meant yeah. to get these people voted, and what sort of targets do you have to hit? Yeah, there would there, there would be spreadsheets, and and basically you're supposed to try and get everyone to vote Labour. But I mean that that the, the uh, there's an understanding that um, yeah, clearly some votes are more controversial. So you you you, I mean ultimately the most important thing is that you provide accurate intelligence. It's no good going to the chief whip and saying, oh yeah, I think I'll get so and so to vote for us, and then they won't vote for us. It's much better to go and say, I'm having real difficulty. I don't think they're going to vote with us. Really sorry. And then on the day, I've got them. I've got yeah. them. You know. And then you're a. You know. Then you're a great. So it's all about expectations management in that sense. You know. <laughs> ne- never, never overpromise, because uh, that that's when you know that you'll 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 uh, you'll be disappointed. And is there a characteristic that the whips at the same time share? Do you think you were appointed a whip for for your personality, for for the way that you think you would be able to convince people? No, I think I was appointed a whip because before the two thousand five election, I had been the PPS to Alan Milburn, and um, that helped. That was a funny. That was a funny thing in itself because no, he was Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster at the time. He was in the cabinet office, basically, basically minister, minister for function. getting Blair re-elected. You know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and so I was. He rang me up in November, I think it was two thousand and four, and said, Kevin. I've always thought you were incredibly talented, you know, brilliant, you know, I'd be an absolute honour if, if, if you'd agree to be my, you know, PPS in this, in this new role. And I said, I'd love to, Alan, but you do know I voted against the war in Iraq, don't you? And he said, oh, I've forgotten about that. I'll ring you back. And then, <laughs> <laughs> Why did you remind him? Why did you remind him? So then him? he went to, he, he went to, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be straight about this. So he went back, he rang me back anyway, 10 minutes later, he said, no, it's fine. He'd obviously gone and checked with the chief whip or whatever, or, you know, kind of Tony or whatever it was. He said, no, no, it's fine. You you know, I I was deemed not being a serial kind of, you know, troublemaker. But there was, you know, there was an MP when I was appointed to the whip's office eventually, who who actually raised that and said, I think it's shocking you've been appointed to the whip's office when you voted against the war in Iraq, you know. But but I think what happened was I was PPR to Alan Milburn, and he decided after the 2005 election, he wasn't going to carry on but he did say to me look i'll make sure your name's in that you know and and uh, for 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 whatever and and it turned out that i got the call to join the whip's office it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because we've talked about this a few times, but never in this detail before. And when I've asked you about this before, you've said you, th- you think voting against Iraq did kind of hold you back career-wise in terms of ministerial rank. But just to be clear on what you mean by the other whip raising it, it's not that they were like, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you agree with the war? It's that on an issue on which the Labour government have felt could have fallen, you basically voted against it and you shouldn't be working in an office that's about getting people to vote in line. That was exactly what they, that's exactly what they said. Although the person involved wasn't a whip at that time, but they, but that, that was exactly what they, they said. Um, And, uh, you know, that, that's a perfectly legitimate, but I think erroneous opinion, because if, if whips are people who don't understand that there are issues of conscience and principle that people might have trouble voting for, they'll have very little prospect of being able to persuade them to possibly to change their mind or, or you know, find a compromise. So um, I think it was wrong. I, I, I can understand why people would object to someone who, who was a complete serial you know, rebel and never you know, supported and had really been disloyal, etc. But on an issue of that enormity, to vote, you know, against your conscience, uh, you know, to me was unthinkable. You know, you have to look in the mirror the next day when people's so many lives are at risk and, and say, I, I did what I thought was right, whatever the consequences. And did, um, was your relationship with that person okay after that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of, I don't, you know, I don't hold a grudge really. I'm not, I, I'm not that person. I haven't got, I've got that, that, I've got room for all that hatred in, in, in my heart that some people carry around sometimes in politics and, you know, never, uh, you know, never forget any slight or, you know, and so on. It's just, it's just not my style. I think life's too short for that. So, um, yeah, I get, I get on fine. I, t- I tend to talk to everybody and, and try and, and I think actually being a good whip, it's one thing I learned in the whip's office is never close off never close the door on somebody because one day you might really need their vote and uh you might well, it might be that independent mp from blind gwent who you ran the by-election you know against and tried your best to you know defeat and threw every bit of muck you could at in a by-election all that kind of thing but ultimately you know you might need to sit next to them and say die can you help us out on this one you know and and uh and so i think a good wit will, would understand that, and it's not just about bullying and and and, and, the, and the popular myths about whipping. So, with the Iraq War vote at the time, did you waver? I mean, it's, it's clear in that documentary, and I remember at the time I was working for Paddy Tipping, who was uh, voting against the war, um, and it was clear that that was probably the most intense whipping operation of, of the Labour government, of that Labour government. That it was basically all. You know, they went all out to try and win that vote, and understandably so. Was a lot of pressure put on you, and and did it almost work? Well, I think that I sort of I was clear in my own mind where the line was for me, which was I wasn't going to support any action that didn't have the 
support of the Security Council of the United Nations, and that 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 was the that was my red line, if you like. Um, there was a lot of pressure applied. I don't think it was unfair, but I, and and I and I thought, well, I would do the same if I was trying to persuade somebody to vote for something. That the that the sort of final throw of the dice they tried, having tried sort of um, you know all, all the other various things like you know even one person did literally say to me, you know this, this you don't want to spoil your career and all that, and and I said come on you don't, I'm not that person you've got to try that line on somebody else, but um, someone came up that's come up to me and they did literally say, could you abstain instead of voting against because if more than half of the non-payroll parliamentary Labour Party, the people who are not ministers and so on, vote against, Tony will resign. You know? And that, that, that was the line that was given to me by a, you know, a kind of senior person. And, and I said, well, you can tell Tony from me, I don't want him to resign. There's no need for him to resign, but I'm not supporting this. And that's just the way it is. You know, I'm, I'm abstaining on, ultimately, I mean, there were votes, I, I abstained on most of the votes, but when it came down to the vote, the essential um, amendment that was down, 139 of us, that was the one we picked that we would rebel on, 139 of us, um, Labour MPs voted against it. And obviously that, that a colleague of Whip perhaps did say to you that this this may affect your career. Did that cross your mind? Did you think, oh, you know, my relationship with with this party isn't going to be the same after this and, and I may have to take a hit in that regard? No, I think the only thing I thought at the time was uh, you've just got to be able to look yourself in the mirror tomorrow and say, I, I, I thought very deeply and I, I did what I thought was right. That was the only thing literally that I thought about. And I remember a friend who voted the other way saying to me a couple of weeks later um, when they were dragging down the statue of Saddam Hussein and all the people in Baghdad were you know, throwing their shoes at it or whatever, um, do you feel a bit... Do you feel a bit stupid now? And I and I, I said, no, because ultimately when I made the decision, you know, I had to figure in my own mind, what if they find all these weapons of mass destruction and these plans for, you know, you've still got to, you've still got to have a reason that you thought, even with that possibility being there, that it was the right thing to do. Because nobody really knew what, what, the, what was going to happen next. And of course, then events moved in a very different direction after that initial surge of euphoria and the success of the military operation to to what we now subsequently know happened so uh, I, I i thought it all through and I, I knew where i stood and it had been a, a build-up over many months you know of, of, it wasn't a sort of one-off one-night thing uh, and and uh, but it was an extraordinary you know extraordinary period in parliament I and mean, and that program does capture briefly the intensity of that that evening on march the 18th 2003 you mentioned being a treasury whip and, and being in those meetings with Gordon, obviously friends with Ed Balls and, and Tom Watson. Were you more of a Brownite than a Blairite then, ideologically? I, I think that's. I, I think it's probably fair to say I was more in what you might call the classic Labour rather than the new Labour mould in some ways. In that, you know, watching that that documentary we've been talking about, you know, I I, I really was a massive sceptic about the you know the agenda of kind of you know academies and you know choice and all that sort of thing that ultimately what you use good public services that are run by people for the right reasons namely because they want to be involved in public service not the public sector but the public service and yes you can be flexible about and how you deliver that and you, you mustn't be ideological about it 
But I, I felt in some ways there was an ideology about the, the at sometimes about the new labor approach that nothing run by the public sector could ever be as good as something that was run by the private sector. And therefore you get more efficient public services if you if you effectively outsourced. And 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 I, I never I was always a big skeptic about that. And, and therefore, you know, more more on the, the brown side of that economic argument. But I also, you know, think that uh, you know Tony Blair is a remarkable political leader. I'm not one of these people, for example, I'm not one of these people who actually genuinely believes that 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 he went to war in Iraq fully knowing that you know there were no weapons of mass destruction. I think that's nonsense. I think he genuinely believed that you know, we were gonna uh, that we were gonna have that outcome um, and was genuinely shocked when it didn't happen and, and kind of has had to justify it ever since. Yes, uh, and arguably rightly so. You know, if you, it's a big decision to take, and I, th I think he realizes that it's something he'll always be asked about. Mm. Just think about the direction the Labour Party has taken since, um, in you know the post-Brown era, losing that 2010 election, and then electing Ed Miliband, then Jeremy Corbyn, then Keir Starmer. See, the further the party's got away from Tony Blair, the, the more catastrophic the election results have been. Do you have any sense now? I mean, the, the Labour Party conference this year, I don't know if you were there down in, in Brighton. I was, but, yeah. But the atmosphere looked incredible. I actually found it such a sad thing to admit. I'm sure people will forgive me. Really emotional watching Keir Starmer's speech because it was the first time really since a Gordon Brown conference speech where I thought a leader's speech was actually really good. Mm. And um, for this, this was more emotional, I think, because there were so many people in the hall that were just delighted that the last five years were over and that the Labour Party was taking a step in the right direction. Mm. And it felt like a real demonstration to the country that Labour was kind of rediscovering its sanity. Mm. And it felt almost euphoric. And I, I wasn't there. I was watching it on telly. I don't know if you were in the hall for Keir's speech, whether it felt euphoric or whether I'm just a soppy mm. gear. <laughs> um, but it feels like the Labour Party is perhaps... The tanker is turning in the right direction. I, I think that's probably quite a good analogy. You know, it is it is literally like turning a tanker around. Once you're on the political slide, you know, it's it, it is it is a long way back. And and I and I admire Keir Starmer for taking the job on because it's leader of the opposition is the worst job in the world at the best of times. But you know, to use another analogy that charge you the PLP meeting. You know, when when you're basically at the uh, you're not nowhere near the top of Mount Everest. You're basically at the luggage carousel at Kathmandu Airport, you know, uh, struggling to get to base camp one. And that's that's effectively the job he's having to do. We haven't got, you know, we haven't got 200 MPs, you know, even in the House of Commons. It's a long climb back into, into power and not an easy thing to do and to attempt to do in one step, you know, and obviously he has to attempt to do it in one step, but we know it's a very, very tough job and he knows that as well. So I admire him for, you know, for taking that, trying to take that job on and trying to sort matters out and trying to make us electable again. But, you know, we've got this disastrous government and they're 10 points ahead in the polls. And, and it just shows you a number of things. One is, you know, how far down we, we've gone. And just secondly, how much the kaleidoscope of politics has been shaken up by the events of the last decade, and particularly Brexit, obviously, and have really, you know, we're not quite sure exactly where they've landed. The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle. You, you see, I knew you'd see the reference. I knew you'd see the reference. <laughs> so the last Le Labour leadership election, you backed Lisa Nandy. Yeah. Politically, you know, to the left of Keir Starmer, would you say? 
Um, yeah, probably. I think I, I think she probably would be identified uh, in in that way. Um, I was just trying to keep my record of of never voting for the successful Labour leader, or well, certainly not since since Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, anyway. Um, and uh, um, in Gordon's case, obviously, he was the only candidate, but, yes. but I, so I did get it right on that occasion. But um, I think that uh, my view about it at the time was simple looking at it. And I spoke to Kia, obviously, uh, about this. And, and, and I, uh, as I've said earlier, I admire him greatly. And I, and I think he's a very, very good leader doing, you know, in very tough circumstances. I was just trying to think, you know, what, what does the Labour Party need to look like in a few years' time? And, you know, is it time that we really, you know, promoted some of the incredible women MPs that we have to, you know, to, to be future leaders of the party? And Lisa is an immensely intelligent, talented person, great performer on the media, on TV. And I just thought she had the potential, you know, to, to, to emerge into a, a great leader and also to be a big contrast to, you know, Boris Johnson. I, I wonder how well he would have dealt with, you know, a female opponent, if I'm frank about it. Um, so to me, that's why it made sense to support her and certainly make sure, you know, she got on the ballot and had a run at it and had a chance to put her argument to the members. I mean, just as I did back in 2010, I supported Ed Balls. And similarly, I just thought he was somebody who people had not recognised, you know, the, the talent and didn't really understand the real Ed Balls. They just thought he was Gordon Brown's thuggish enforcer, you know, rather than actually this incredibly talented progressive politician. So um, an engaging personality as well. So, you know, that's why. And a good dancer and a good cook. Well, we didn't know he was a good dancer at the time. I knew I knew he was a good I knew he was a good cook. Um, but uh, but the dancing came later. It's interesting that Labour has never you know, the Party of Equalities never elected a female leader in its entire history. Why do you think that is? I suppose we had Margaret Beckett as a temporary leader, didn't we? Uh, yes, uh, and probably Harriet as well, possibly, yeah, um, never, never in, the, in those interregnums. I, I, well, why is it? I don't know. That, that could be the subject of a whole book, couldn't it? Uh, you know, clearly, you know, the, the, the trade union background traditionally was, was meant that it was quite a macho sort of uh, party in its, in its representation. But there's very little excuse now. I mean, since 97, we've had uh, you know, a very large numbers of, of, of female MPs. Therefore, the pipeline has been created in Parliament so that there's the possibility of there being enough women to, that, that one could emerge. You don't have to be an outlier like, you know, Barbara Castle or someone these days. They were great female MPs who've been in Parliament for a while, which is what you need. Um, so, so there's no real, real reason why. And given that the Tories have had two, you know, it, it is something that is, a, is an issue. Um, uh, it, it does, you, still, you should still obviously have the, the right person for the job. But I think there are lots of talented uh, Labour women and um, it can't be too long before one of them gets elected as our leader. Lots of talented Labour men as well. Multi-talented Labour men, of which you're one, Kevin, because we're talking about alternative uh -huh. careers earlier. And I deliberately didn't mention music, but you've released an album called The Clown and the Cigarette Girl, which is out in uh, in about a month. Oh, no, it's out in a few days, is it? Yeah, it's out it's in October the 27th. Uh, so is, that's in about uh, fortnight. Is the is when it's out. It, it'll be it'll also be out on vinyl next year, but there's a world vinyl shortage. So at the moment, it's just on CD and etc. and other platforms. Yes, you can listen to the um, you can listen to one of the singles on on Apple Music and Spotify. And it's absolutely brilliant, Tabernacle Lane. And mm -hmm. I listened to it, and firstly, I just thought 
it's about a story of a murder and a, and, a, and a, effectively somebody's then wrongly convicted and, and killed themselves and then years later effectively pardoned. I thought this can't just be made up. So I Googled it. Mm. And it's a true story. It's an incredible story. So we'll come on to the story. Firstly, it's a brilliant song. It really reminds me of Mark Knopfler solo stuff and a bit of Bob right, Dylan. Okay. And a bit of right. it reminds me of it feels like a song that could have been on Noffler's um, Sailing to Philadelphia album. It's got a lovely, folky Celtic yeah. vibe. I might, I might clip that and put your that quote in. Uh, in oh, it's in brilliant! Listen to, but it's got that, but it's that great mix yeah. of like fiddles and that Celtic catchiness, but also almost that sort of like um, train rhythm. You know, it's got real pace to mm. it, and it's just so catchy. Do you think it's amazing that you're an MP, and you can write really good music because obviously when if an MP says I've got an album out, you don't yeah. know how good it's going to be. It's absolutely brilliant. You're such a well, brilliant songwriter and with a beautiful singing voice. Well, that's very kind of you, Matt. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I think that um, I think one thing that is important if you're an MP and you're going to stick your neck out and put an album out, you better make sure, very <laughs> much make sure it's not rubbish. Um, I, I've written songs all my life since you know long before I was involved in politics when I was a a teenager and I'm from that Welsh Irish background your know, Irish father Welsh mother so there's a lot of musicality in the genes I think and my sister's a, a musician and a singer as well so so it's something I've always done and actually it's a great release from politics you know when I go back to Cardiff on a Thursday after a week at Westminster the first thing I'll do is sit down and you know play the piano or, or you know knock out get the guitar out or whatever and that's my hinterland if you like that takes all the stresses and strains of politics away and, and makes it easy to forget. So I, I thought it was about time I, I actually, as you know, I played in the band for years, MP4. We played with you on many occasions, uh, uh, you know, a band, a rock band of other MPs. But I thought I'd, uh, it's about time I put my own solo stuff out there. And how's that gone down with the band? Is, th is this like Robbie leaving Take That? Yeah, it's very controversial, actually. You're right. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a bit of resentment, you know, and a little bit of jealousy, I think, probably concern about future direction musically as a result so uh you know I'm, I'm having to work very hard on on uh on on you know solving of people's bruised egos as a result of it um actually uh, they've all been great i mean um it's it's a different style of music than we do in the band and that's the reason i've done it there and also the reason why you know the band are not playing on it i just thought that i'll try and do something completely different from what we do and you're right, it, it is in that sort of folky, folk rocky, you know, kind of space. Uh, and, uh, and there is a lot of themes in there that are Celtic themes and quite a few story songs that relate to places in, in Wales and so on. But with a hopefully a contemporary edge. So I tried to, you know, uh, give it a little bit of that edge. And, you, and in Tabernacle Lane, that song, um, you know, the, 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 the guy who plays bass on it is, is Glenn Matlock, who uh is a former sex pistol so I'll just give it a bit of propulsive edge which i think you picked up on there and, yeah. and and some great percussion on it so i just wanted to try and bring that those sorts of songs to life so how on earth did you end up getting involved in basically the sex pistols <laughs> well um one of the things i've done over the years which we haven't talked much about is campaigned about issues related to the creative industries and particularly around copyright and music and it's been a kind of little speciality of mine in my time in parliament, I've built up quite a lot of expertise on it. And so you encounter people along the way in various campaigns. And Glenn was someone who I met when we were campaigning to get airlines to 
let you know guitarists take their mu musical instruments on rather than throw them in the hole and emerging at the other end in pieces. Um, and we went to meet the aviation minister together about the aviation white paper and so on, because Glenn is still a touring musician, you know, and and, uh, and anyway, we became mates as a result of that. And, and it's quite simple. He just offered. I didn't actually ask him. He just said, well, do, you want, do you want me to play on your records? Yeah, oh you know, that would be fantastic. So so um, and of course, it's all in the news at the moment with the pistols because of the court case involving Steve Jones, Paul Cook, um, and uh, they're making this believe it or not, Disney miniseries about the uh, the Sex Pistols. So uh, Glenn will be one of the characters in that. He was famously kicked out of the Sex Pistols for being too good a musician. So, uh. <laughs> But he co-wrote Pretty Vacant. He, he, he did. He, 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 he's got a writing credit, I think, on 10 of the 12 songs on Nevermind the Bollocks. And he is a, a really good songwriter and musician. And that's not often recognised because, of course, Ultimately, you know, when they broke super big, uh, he, he, they had Sid Vicious in the band who couldn't play at all, uh, really. Yeah, if you read Glenn's book, I was a teenage sex pistol. He, he, he outlines how he was he was quite generous about the whole thing. He tried to teach Sid how to play, you know, because <laughs> he he effectively left the band actually because he's the one who stood up to John Lydon's antics, you know, and they had a big stand-up row, and you know that that was the result. But um, so he he actually tried to. Cheap Sid Vicious to play the bass, but it was hopeless. Well, it's so cool that you got him on your album. And that, that song, mm -hmm. Tabernacle Lane, is, is fantastic. And it's about Mahmoud Matan, who was wrongly convicted of the uh, yeah. murder of Lily Volpert. So is this... Because I was listening to it, I was like, you can't just made this stuff up. It's too specific. Mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful song. So is this like a big... Is it a well-known story in Cardiff? I think it's about to become much better known. The reason I know so much about it was, this is interesting, is a rare example of a song coming out of casework. Because when I worked for Rodri Morgan, I met Laura Matan, who was Mahmoud Matan's uh, widow, uh, and, 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 and uh, her sons. And they were campaigning for the overturning at that time, back in the 90s, of the conviction. Uh, uh, and it was one of the, well, I think it was the first case to be decided by the new criminal review board that was brought in around that time. And they successfully had it overturned because it was a disgrace. The trial's an absolute disgrace. As it says in the song, even the defence barrister called him a savage in the in the trial because he was a Somali sailor. And um, uh, they received a very large compensation payout as a result of that, uh, of that. So it was something that came across my desk working for Rodri Morgan. Uh, and we were working you know, campaigning with, with the Home Office, with some the local solicitors firms who were representing Laura and the family to get the whole thing overturned. So that's how I knew the story so intimately. But I think it'll become better known because there's actually a novel being written about Mahmoud Matan by a woman called Nadifa Mohammed, which has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So it's, it's kind of a story that's, every so often it comes back around and people talk about it because he was the last man to be hanged in Cardiff in 1952. And if the, if, the, if the book gets turned into a film, I guess you're kind of in the need to write the soundtrack. It's a cynical. This is as new labour as you get. This is... you've, you've, you've uncovered my sort of sinister plan. <laughs> Just on the band then. I mean, did any of them, Greg Knight on drums, Ian Causey on vocals and guitar, Pete Wishart on uh, keys, did any of them say, oh, I'll, I'll play drums on the album? And you had to say, oh, actually, I want to, I want to do this on my own, fellas. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> it's been so awkward. Exactly what you just said. Um, but, but, um, uh, which is a nice offer, by the way, uh, you know, 
but um but i just thought uh, i'll try and make it completely different uh and and then i won't i won't have to sort of worry about you know kind of stylistically i knew what i wanted it to to be like and uh you know we do kind of rock and pop really in in uh, in in mp4 and this i want this to have a much folkier kind of edge to it so so it's a different type of playing really you're really talented musicians. Um, Greg Knight's a fantastic drummer. Pete Wishart, a bona fide rock star in his own right, Absolutely. having been in Big Country and Runrig and played that incredible Loch Lomond gig. I would show it to so many people. It's one of the best. I mean, there's Queen at Live Aid, there's Oasis at Nebworth, and there's Runrig at Loch Lomond are kind of like the three mm. clips that I just think they look like gigs you were desperate to be at. And he's obviously, you know, a. a, a decorated songwriter it must have been really interesting anyway being in a cross-party band particularly in the <laughs> the referendum years i suppose of of scotland in 2014 and brexit in 2016 it's amazing that you've all managed to still hang together and be mates yeah and we played you know during some of those years at smp conference and uh, you know because we always had a agreement we play each other's party conferences as we're a cross-party band we do charity and then any cross-party kind of um, stuff. So we've played Labour Conference, Tory Conference, SNP Conference. Um, and, you know, cliched as it sounds, I think it's the music that's, that's, that's kept us together. And you're right, you know, they're great, great musicians. Ian Causey used to be the Labour MP for Brigham Gould, you know, brilliant, you know, he was semi-pro and, you know, uh, you know, all his adult life, such a versatile, brilliant, you know, musician. Greg, a great drummer, Pete, you know, legend in his own, literally a legend, you know, in Scottish music. And that gig at Lot Lomond, you know, really historical, big, massive gig. Uh, you know, so for me, I always felt, you know, kind of I was in esteemed company playing with them because I'd sort of, you know, played around folk clubs in a few bands, but never, you know, at, at the level that those guys have. So I think Pete thinks I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a pretty mediocre guitar player, but a good songwriter. He does like my, he does like my, my songwriter. And he's an amazing musician, Pete. You know, yeah. Um, and and a you know really brilliant keyboard player. So what are the musical? Because you're right about Ian, the incredible guitarist who can play anything on on, on any guitar, and a great yeah. singer. With what are are there kind of musical differences in the band, and do they not necessarily run along political lines? Yeah, I mean. Um, that's a very good question. I, th I, I, I think that that probably Ian is more poppy in the kind of music he likes. I think Pete is quite pop orientated as well. I mean, he's a pop, you know, bona fide pop star, um, uh, but has that sort of Scottish Celtic edge. Greg was, is, I think, his first love is soul music, actually, Greg, and and that's why he loves it. And me a bit more on the on the folky side. So we've all got quite different influences. But I think MP4, you know, the lineup was always going to be you know rock and pop so we play anything from the beatles through to the fratellis and we throw in you know sneak in one or two of uh, uh, of our self-written songs now and again but but generally speaking we know what we're doing we're playing to audiences at party conference or at charity do we want we want you know a good sing-along or stuff they know and that's the stuff we play and uh i'm just thinking like rehearsals and things like um does Greg go too fast? Is Pete sometimes off? Does Ian sing? The, you know, are there kind of like tensions within the band that aren't political? That kind of just, I guess, at a personality level. That's a, that's a very good um, point. I'd say probably Pete, in some ways, is our 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 leader. You know, musical leader. 
But Ian is the guy who does all the nuts and bolts always, always make sure the arrangements are there, that, you know, they've, they've got a lyric sheet if you need it, the chords are there and all that kind of thing. He's the guy who actually, you know, does, does puts in the prep and the legwork to make sure that when we rehearse, you know, everything's ready, uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, you know, Greg and I kind of turn up and do as we're told. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're fantastic to see live. Um, and the new album, The Clown and the Cigarette Girl, is out in a couple of weeks. You can get it on Spotify, Apple Music. You can buy the CD. I'm going to put a link to all that in the blurb. And, as you say, when the when the vinyl shortage is over, we'll be able to buy it, buy it on yeah. vinyl. Sometime in the in the new year, it'll be it'll be available on vinyl. So um, it's amazing how many people don't have a CD player these days. Uh, uh, it'll it'll eventually appear also on the streaming services, but you can play Tabernacle Lane on there now. Probably best to search for that rather than my name. To my horror, I discovered there's more than one Kevin Brennan on Spotify. So uh, right, yeah. search for Tabernacle Lane and you'll you'll find it and see what you think. And this is on the Revolver label. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a little label. MP4 have released stuff on Revolver as well, run by a guy called Paul Birch up in the Midlands. They're a well-established, you know, British independent record label, uh, and you know they've got some great stuff on on there. So have a look on their website as well for 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 the music they've got. And um, you know, it's great to have their support. Kevin, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming always, on. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Matt, for having me. there you go kevin brennan what an absolutely lovely bloke and uh it's so great to hear those stories and his perspectives and just i i'm a sucker for whip stuff and obviously he says it's like an hr department i kind of i still like to slightly romanticize it imagine it it was all still a bit sort of 1970s and all a bit tough but frankly i just don't think that's the reality if you guessed the other john smith an email at politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to listen to Tabernacle Lane. You can listen to it now on Spotify and on Apple Music. I'm sure it's available on other streaming services. And I put a link in the blurb to where you can buy the, the CD, if you have a CD player. Um, I don't. Um, but I think you can play it through an Xbox or a DVD player, and it will be released on vinyl. If that song's anything to go by, the album will be superb. And, of course, it's got a sex pistol on it, which is very, very cool. So thank you for downloading this. Don't forget, buy your tickets for the Caroline Flint Night, Monday the 25th of October at the Duchess. And it is a stunning venue. It's so mad that you go to this place. It's like opposite the Lion King and Mamma Mia. It's like going into a palace. The interior of that place is immaculate. A beautiful auditorium and like the bar area and that. You're like, this is mad that in the middle of the West End, there's a show that is politics a pure politics night out obviously i'm all in favor of it and i hope you are too you can get tickets at mattford.com slash live monday the 25th of october with one of the most talented labor mps of her generation caroline flint a brilliant outspoken labor voice very vocal critic of jeremy corbyn it'd be fascinating to hear uh, not only her stories from inside government and inside the, the blair and brown years but also her assessment of where labor the labor party is now um so Thank you so much for downloading this. Tell all your friends. Tell all your friends that the show has now moved from the other palace to the Duchess Theatre. Leave a five-star review. I think that's enough of me to ask for you for now, of you for now, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.